you are listening to This Book I Read, a podcast from Beyond Cataclysm. Hello and welcome to This Book I Read, uh, a podcast where we talk to people about interesting books that they have read. And today we have Elizabeth Laird. Is that correct? Is that how I pronounced it? Today we have Elizabeth Laird on the podcast. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello to you, Chris. And how are you doing today? Not too bad, thank you. Bit of a cough. So if I suddenly start bursting out you'll know what's happened but i'm absolutely fine fantastic um so i have invited you on uh, elizabeth because it's a little bit of a different episode from normal uh, so normally i get my guests to say why are you here and they say there's this book i read um but actually that's not the case today well there's this book i wrote so Elizabeth wrote a book. Oh, I don't even know how. Well, I read the book in approximately 1995. I read yes. Crackers. I think it was published, actually, in 1989. 19, <laughs> 1989. Well, it, yeah, it probably, it, thinking back, I'm thinking back about 25 years. It, it probably didn't feel like a brand new book. Um, and I read a book called Crackers. Um and uh, in that book, uh, some, some, some. I think there was a boy in the book who uh, wrote their own comic, and f- and the and the comic was called Crackers. Sorry about the spoilers there. If anyone picks up Crackers, we've uh, we've rather rather ruined that for you. But and following reading that book, I started a comic, and then when I became older, knowing that I could start a comic, I started a a zine. Uh, writing about music and then now I run a, a ridiculous publishing company uh, and I write for a magazine uh, and my own son has also written a comic inspired by my comic um, and all of that has happened because you wrote a book Elizabeth That is completely amazing, Chris. I can't tell you how astonished I was when you got in touch and said that you'd been inspired by Crackers. I had actually completely forgotten about that book. (laughs) It was such a long time ago. And I have written very different sorts of things since then. Um, I couldn't even remember the plot. So only about an hour ago, I found an old copy and whizzed through it. I thought, oh, actually, this is rather good. I couldn't possibly write it now because my kids were younger then. So I was riffing off what they did and what they said. And, of course, they were terribly funny. I was really, really naughty and sneaky. I used to sit around, you know, when they were playing and they thought I was writing something. I was actually noting down every word they said. And sometimes I even had a, a tape recorder so I could catch the way they talked. And I did confess to them later and they were furious. But... But I think they kind of thought it was quite cool too. So, um, did you give them a cut of the royalties? Oh, look! I mean, what I've spent on my kids. <laughs> oh, that's what. So they still actually owe you money out of the situation. Oh yes, they do. <laughs> um, I think that's very much the opposite approach that Enid Blyton took. Um, I think Enid Blyton's quite renowned for working in a. 
think it was in Bournemouth. There was a specific hotel she would go to in Bournemouth, and she would she would complain to the staff um, about children playing outside and being noisy oh, and having oh, fun. Yes, yes. Oh no, that's dreadful. <laughs> um, indeed. Um, so, how long have you been a writer, Elizabeth? Actually, how, how old I, are you now? So that the, the listeners okay. can't see you. You look about twenty-one. Thank you very much. I'm going to be eighty in October, so um, quite old, really. Um, and I must have written my first novel when I was about forty something. And um, like most people, my first novel, which is called Red Sky in the Morning, was um, autobiographical. Really, um, it was about my little brother who had um, a very serious condition. And he died when he was three and I was seven. And so I just thought, you know, that's a story I could tell. And I wrote about him. And um, to my absolute amazement, a publisher not only took it, but, you know, it did very well. It got shortlisted with the Carnegie Medal. It was amazing. It's still in print, you know, just um, 38, five, I don't know, a long time later. And then having done that, I thought, well, I'll do something a bit more fun. And I wrote Crackers. Um, and since then, I've written 25-ish novels and many other kinds of children's books, um, picture books and, you know, hundreds of books, really, like TV series I, books, things I, that I, made money. <laughs> I think the, uh, yeah, the, I definitely like the idea of becoming somebody who's written so many books that they can completely forget a book that they've, they've written. I think that's, oh. uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a goal that I'm going to set there. I definitely remember all my books at the moment. You're very young, Chris. You've got to wait a bit for that, you know. <laughs> well, I'm only, I'm 37, so actually, you know, I'm I'm ahead of the curve. I, I I don't need to start writing for another three years. Absolutely not. No, no. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's a good there's a a rich history of uh, people who start writing late, and I think uh, Morgan Freeman, I think, only started acting when he was about 43 or 45, something like that. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, there's hope for all of us. I think the time has gone when I could be a ballet dancer, but there are lots of other things I might contemplate. The, actually, the one that makes me depressed. So I don't actually like football. Really, I, I I watch football, but I don't really like to play football. But there was a oh, what was his name now? Uh, Wayne Rooney. I don't know if you follow yeah, football, but, yeah, yeah, but heard of Wayne Rooney. Yeah. yeah, so Wayne Rooney was almost exactly my age, I think, or is exactly my age. So I think when. When we were at school, when I was sort of 15, 16, he was just bursting to prominence. And so I sort of followed his career and then and he could have reached the peak of his career and then he sort of declined a little bit. And and now he's not a footballer. And I think, ah, that's that that ship sailed. I'm probably that's not going to become sad, a professional footballer now. Don't think so. I wouldn't try if I were you. Might strain a ligament. <laughs> I well, yes, I I think that is that is fair. Um, so I would like to talk about a, a different book. What is, as you look back, what is a favourite book that you've written? Do you know, it's quite, it's a bit like asking your mum, which is your favourite child, because every book you write, in my case, a lot, um, at the time when you're writing it, it's, it's your life. It's everything you do. And the thing is, I have had a very exciting life, actually. I mean, I've been arrested for murder in Ethiopia, been bitten by a snake. Hang on, let's just, hang on, hang on, let's just stop a bit. So did, did you commit a murder in Ethiopia? No. No, I found okay. a body. Yeah. 
So then um, got bitten by a snake in the South China Sea. Uh, that wasn't nice. And I've been, oh, I've been through the Civil War in Lebanon and grabbed the baby and hid under a table when the rockets started going. And lots of exciting adventures. I was on the last plane out of Beirut when they were just about to close the airport um, and the runway. Anyway, it was very exciting. So I have had a very exciting life. And looking back, you know, I've I've actually exploited quite a lot of my adventures in writing and I've created new ones. So, in fact, having lived in Ethiopia for a couple of years in the 1970s, I went, no, wait a minute, 1960s, I went back again in the 1990s and travelled all over the country collecting folk stories, um, which were then published by the British Council for Schools. And so I then thought, oh, I think I could do something about this. Because when I lived there in the 1960s, I got to know a gang of street boys. I used to take them for rides in my car on Saturdays. And um, they used to give me fleas, but it was worth it because they loved it so much. And then 40, 30 years later, when I went back, I tried to find those boys. And I did find two of them. And one of them had become a tourist guide. And another one was driving a truck. They absolutely made it. Anyway, I then got to know another gang of street boys in Addis at the time. So how, how old were you at this point? Oh, it must have been 60, I suppose. So okay, that's why I'm just wandering around Addis Ababa making friends with street boys. Yeah, it must have been 65. Anyway, so then um, I, um, I asked them to tell me their life story, and they all told me their stories. It was very sweet, actually. We sat behind. I mean, they were terribly shy. Street people don't don't like people nosing into their business. Um, but they did let me. And I said, well, what would you like me to do? And they said, we would want something to eat. So I sent one of them off with some money. And he came back with all the things they like but never get, like milk and meat and bananas and nice bread. And they sat there eating it incredibly nicely. I mean, said grace first. And then they handed the food out to each other. And we ate together. And then they told me their stories. And my dear, my hair stood on end at some of these stories. There was one little boy, about seven. And he'd lost his front teeth. So I reckon he was about seven, you know, milk teeth. So I said, what's your name? And he said, my, I don't know. My mother died before she could tell me. So I said, well, who looked after you? He said, some other mothers. What happened to them? They all died. You know, women on the streets in Addis don't live very long. Um, I said, well, who looks after you now? A big smart, my gang. And they were a family. Anyway, I wrote a novel about them called The Garbage King. And I gave that little boy a starring role. Because he had a terrible cough and he had AIDS. And um, he didn't live very long. Anyway, so that was the Ethiopian. And then I wrote another one about Ethiopia called The Fastest Boy in the World. Because in 1960, oh my God, it must be eight or nine, I happened to be at the airport in Addis Ababa, looking out of the window, and there was a lion sitting on the tarmac. And I thought, it's weird. What's happening? And I said to somebody, Can, I mean, am I seeing things? They said, no, no, uh, the emperor, Haile Selassie, is about to come, that's his lion, uh, to greet Ababa Bukala, who is the first Ethiopian athlete to win a medal at the Olympic Games. So then the plane arrived, out got Ababa Bukala, 
up came Haile Selassie, huge party going on. And that was when I started to think about Ethiopian athletes. So a long time later, it must have been 35 years later, I wrote a novel called The Fastest Boy in the World, which is about an Ethiopian boy who wants to be a runner. I mean, I think, I, I think there's, it's in it because I think, I think if you'd asked, if you'd said 10 years ago and you asked people about Ethiopia, I think people, I think the thing that would come to mind probably would be famine potentially. Um, but I think nowadays, uh, alongside that, I think we'd probably talk about athletes, wouldn't we? So we'd probably talk about um, the, uh, I, I ran the marathon last year. Um, I did oh. not do it in sub two hours. Uh, I did not do it in sub four hours. So uh, I don't think I'm going to. You did it. I, I did it exactly. And I'm never doing it again. <laughs> I mean, I definitely now just really kind of want to read the book about it. what you're what you're telling these stories actually reminds me of is is um a bit um Roald Dahl's boy and then what, this, what the second one yeah, was going solo mm. going solo um just because I think I, so I've I've lived in South Africa um for a year um and I I worked at a mission hospital um and had some had some very unusual experiences but I think the the times of the kind of kind of the endings of empire um mm. like i i think were were very interesting i mean beyond cataclysm is named after a john wyndham novel mm. um day of the triffids which is um set in set in um Ooh. set in the 60s 50s um oh, it's from, in the 60s i remember reading it then mm. um and it's it's from it's from the kind of just after that kind of golden age where it's where the world is changing from that kind of post-war to something more modern and it's a very enthralling time and you've lived in very interesting places during that time well that was just the beginning because when we got married we went to live in lebanon where the civil war was on and um I had a baby then, and um, my husband was working for UNRWA, which is the agency for Palestine refugees. And, you know, every day I used to watch what was happening out of the window, and I wrote my diary. So I wrote a novel about that called Oranges in No Man's Land, which was because there was a moment one day when there was a ceasefire and it was all quite peaceful, and we thought we'd go and visit some friends on the other side of the Green Line, which was the fighting line. So we went across town, had lunch with our friends, and on the way back through the the main square called the Burj. In the morning, it had been thronged with people selling stuff. I mean, the ruins, the, the, the whole buildings had all collapsed in the bombing, but everybody had bought up little market stalls all the way around the square and they were selling stuff. But in the afternoon, when we arrived, there was nothing. The stores were all there, the goods were there, not a soul around. And David, who'd been in the army, said, um, It's just about kickoff. It's too late to turn around. The snipers are already in position. And hang on to the baby. And he put his foot down and we screamed across that square. And I looked up to see what was happening. And somebody had tipped over. I must have just started running away. Somebody had tipped over a fruit stall and the oranges were running down the road. So that's why I called my novel Oranges in No Man's Land. Anyway, there was that one. But later on, got very interested in the Middle East. And um, we were evacuated, you know, eventually. But um, I went to, quite recently, about 2017, I think, I went to Jordan 
and did some work in a couple of refugee camps for Syrian refugees and um, working on helping the teachers to get the children to read and write stories. And it was extraordinary. And the teachers, I said to these teachers, you know, this was in Zatari refugee camp, which is a huge, sprawling refugee camp. I said, what are the main problems of your students? You know, these were kids who'd run away from Syria. Some bereaved, lost their fathers or their brothers, lost everything, you know, left their Game Boy behind and all the rest of it. And they'd arrived, their bombs going, we used to look up, the bombers were going overhead with their payloads in place. And, and these teachers said, well, they're very worried about their body image, you know, what they look like. And, and they're kind of worried if their best friend likes them anymore. And um, they're worried about their school results, their exam results, and whether dad and mum are fighting. I thought, they're kids. They're just kids. Yeah. So I wrote two novels based in, in those um, camps. One was called, wait a minute, what's it called? Oh, um, Welcome to Nowhere. And the other one is called A House Without Walls. So, you know, I've been kind of... There, there, yeah. was, a, there was a TV series um, recently called Home on Channel 4. Uh, which, what's that? which featured a Syrian it was a it was actually a sort of a comedy drama um but it featured a it featured a normal english family getting home from france um and they open the boot and there's a syrian man inside he's managed to hide inside um mm-hmm. and there was yeah. this there was this bit in it where he tried to explain what had happened to his world and he ex- he talked about a widescreen tv and there's a box underneath that he has for sound. And there's a special cable that goes between there and there so that the sound travels from the TV. And whatever cable he uses, it doesn't work. And he keeps trying. And he was like, three months ago, that was my biggest problem in life. And now I don't have a country. Um, and so that 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 clash of the kind of the mundane and then the you know, the otherworldly. We we've got Ooh. um We've got about 20 um, uh, Iranian asylum seekers uh, in our church um, mm. and they have a, a real mix of very normal problems and then very unusual. Very big ones, yes. yeah. Mm. That's right. Mm. It's funny. I mean, I was, I've fed on all these, these incredible experiences. Like, you know, we lived in Iraq for a while and I wrote about the Kurds and, and um, Iran and all those places. And then... When you're old, you know, you start going back into your own childhood more. And um, so my last novel was about my childhood. And that's a completely different experience, quite frankly. Was that Charity Brown? There's a novel called The Misunderstandings of Charity Brown. And um, because... I was brought up in the Brethren, which is quite a restrictive, or it was in the 1950s anyway, quite a restrictive sect, Protestant sect, with very strict rules. You know, I mean, you you couldn't no 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 presents for Christmas. I think we weren't really supposed to. Well, my parents bent it, and we did celebrate Christmas a bit. You know, yeah, Um, and not allowed to do anything on Sunday. much but actually we 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 made up our own games all based on the bible we did have fun even you know even though that was tricky and then there's something quite nice about having a special sunday and um making sure your homework's finished on saturday so that you can really rest so 
there were good things. And I had a very loving and wonderful family. But, you know, there were a lot of things which made me think about kids today growing up where their home culture and the world outside and their school culture clashes. This happened to my daughter-in-law, who's an Ismaili uh, Muslim, and and she's dealt with it very graciously. But um, I was sort of quite interested in how I did it, how I did, how I managed the whole school home crisis thing. And um, it's a it's it's not an uncommon experience whether you're Christian, Jewish, you know, Muslim, Sikh. It doesn't even. It doesn't even need to be religious. I mean, whether you. I think my my children are suffering at the moment because we're we're quite we try and follow recommended guidelines on screen time. Um. So so our so my son is twelve and doesn't have a phone. Um. And we have so Monday to Thursdays in our house. We try not to really have kind of entertainment screens. Um. So. They've got a zillion books. They, they've got all the drawing, all the op- opportunities for play. But when they then compare that to, I think my my daughter at her sixth birthday party was the only child not to have a phone. Um, but but so the, but there is a very different divide that they are living with. That so so oh, sorry. absolutely. I mean, I think the home culture versus the outside culture is a very interesting area. And what happens is that in a lot of people expected, when I said I was going to write this book, they said, well, you know, what they expected and what they really wanted was a violent rebellion where the child kicks off violently against the parents. And, you know, and I didn't do that. And I don't think most kids do. You know, they kind of work around it. They come to an accommodation. They kind of, they love their parents. And yet they want to have the freedoms that their other kids have. And they kind of work around it, you know. They kind of... They push a bit here and they question a bit there and, and they do a bit of deception when that's needed. And, um, you know, and that's how you grow up. So I wanted to show that in a gentle way of this child. Who, but, of course, it starts off with this fantasy we've all had. Come on, I bet you have too, that you wake up one morning and the postman brings a letter and it says somebody you don't really know has left you a most wonderful house full of fabulous things. And it's yours. You know, it's, it's that kind of fantasy. So this, the, the book starts off with that fantasy where Charity's family uh, inherit entirely out of the blue an absolutely gorgeous, huge house with a massive garden and an attic stuffed full of thrilling things. And that's how the whole thing starts. But yeah, I suppose it's kind of an image, actually, for for what you do yourself, you know, for what, what goes on in your own life, that your own life is full of treasures which you probably don't even know about. Yeah, I think, um, I think, so one of the things that we do quite a lot of is, is role-play games as a, um, as a Beyond Cataclysm. Our other podcast is called What is Role-Play, where we look at the whole world of, they call it theatre of the mind. Um, but one of the things that is so wonderful there is that you can well absolutely just immerse yourself in a completely different world like Mm. and that's the joy of books isn't it as well oh goodness chris you're so right i mean you know the wonderful thing about reading a book i've just been reading a fantasy book it's very good it's very exciting it's all plot though it's not about character it's all plot 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 you know it's fun but i mean um but the thing about a book which makes you cry 
I do believe in making children cry, actually, makes you cry and laugh and shiver a bit, is that it encourages you to it encourages you to put on somebody else's shoes and walk around in them for a while. And that's how you learn empathy. So it, it has a big impact. I mean, even, do you know what? I mean, Black Beauty, that great novel in the 19th century about a horse, nobody had ever thought about horses much before as beings which, you know, were sensitive and so on. And it was one of the reasons why the RSPCA got founded. So books that, that have a kind of emotional impact make a difference in people's lives, actually. And I think that's my mission, in a way, if you like, to be very pompous about it. Very, you didn't sound pompous. You sounded, I'm pompous. You sounded I'm pompous sincere. I, I think <laughs> one, of, one of the recent um, episodes of this book I read we did, we had Jacob Wood, um, who is who is blind, um, and he he brought Frankenstein. Um, and that was interesting, one, because there's a lot of character in Frankenstein. Um, and uh, and some plot, but I think the, the character is really where it's at. But both yes, we were looking at the kind of the that's dichotomy. That's why it's lasted and it's what, such a great and important novel. And But the dichotomy of who is the monster, you know, mm. as in, as in is, is it the maker? Or, but also for him, as he journeyed, he, he wasn't born blind and he, he became blind. Um, and so his first reading of the book, he read as a sighted person. And then as his illness progressed with his vision, he also he then started to become more of an outsider with a white cane and, and things like that. And so then started to see himself in the monster more as well, which, and so just like you've, you know, just as you've said that basically all of your books are just autobiographical and stolen from your life. Um, we can see ourselves in books, can't we? Oh yes. Yes. I mean, I think everybody does, does this. What, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're writing about in the end, it comes out of your head. And the characters you create are characters that in your head. So, of course, everything's all about it. Everything's seen through your lens anyway. You, well, um, you, you talked about you talked about babies um, or you talked about all of your books being your favourite, like your children. Um, and my microfiction novel that I wrote, The Die Decides, um, I think at the end I said, I think there's like 137 characters I created yeah. in the course of the book. And they're and, all you. <laughs> and, but they're also all, I hope, I hope they're not all me, or at least they're bits of me that I'm not proud of, some of them. But um, but but yeah, that, that bit of kind of, Letting letting go of them was was hard at the end. I, I think the 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 biggest experience I've had of character in um, writing, I've I've written a novel that I haven't that hasn't seen the light of day yet, um, called To Get Out of a Headlock, um, and I created these characters and they I put them in a plot. So there's definitely plot in that one. A lot. Yeah. It's quite. No, it's probably more very important. More, yeah, more plot than character, I'd say. But I got to the end of the novel and I'm I'm not really a planner. I'm more of a kind of let's see what happens. And I actually got to the end scene and I knew I knew what the end scene was, but I didn't really know what happened. And I had the absolutely incredible experience of putting these characters that I've been living with for a year in my life into the situation and just watching and writing what they did. That's and, the best time, isn't it? That's yeah. that doesn't often happen. Um, but when it does, when you just step back and the characters do it themselves, you have this extraordinary feeling coursing through you that there's a kind of electric wave that goes through you. And you just stand there, you watch it and you just write it all down. I, I mean, I, I think amazing. one of the one of the characters actually did what I thought they were going to do. They were like, 
no, I, I, I can't do that. They had a, a, a moral crisis yes, in yes. in front of me, and I was like, I'm writing this. Like this is just me no, making this up. Not. But, no, no, character's no, taken over. I'm just yeah. taking that. It was like you with your tape recorder with your kids. Like yeah. I was just recording what they did. It's true. It's it's a wonderful thing, and it doesn't often happen. And when it does, you know you're onto something. I mean, for me, I know I'm onto something when that happens, but also when I start to cry because I know I'm tapping into an emotion which I really want to express and which I hope other people will feel. I mean, I think the thing about you, going back to the value of reading and fiction, what you read as a kid particularly, stays with you forever. I mean, I remember the books I read as a child 70 years ago. And, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't much around then, actually. But there was this wonderful writer called Geoffrey Trees who wrote historical fiction. Yes, and it had yes, yes. This wonderful on. man. Yes. I'm going to walk away and come back. Um, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and he had okay. great... Okay. He okay, had so Jeffrey Treese, yeah, no Treese. books on no boats on Bannermere, um, is horribly out of print. And actually, one of my goals and dreams is to get the Bannermere series back to print and bring them out on Beyond Cataclysm. So that is, and it's got really strong independent women in it, and it's women, really brilliant. Exactly, the girls were just as good as the boys. I just love Jeffrey Crown of Violet. What a masterpiece. One of his books is in print, actually. It's called, um, wait a minute. It's about, it's about, it's in the Tudor, can't remember. Anyway, it's, it's set in Tudor Britain and they're all about the theatre. I mean, he was a great, theater. I met him, you know, many, many years ago. He was old, I was young. I just sat there, my mouth dropped open. I didn't know what to say. I thought this man is my complete hero. So, I mean, I mean that's, that's basically the experience I'm having now, Elizabeth, just so you know. <laughs> I can't believe that we both had Jeffrey Trees. Like this isn't. I've got. I'm holding up an old, out of print book that is on yes. my shelf that yes. no one, no one I've ever met cares about. No. And of course, you mentioned yes. Jeffrey Trees. Of course, of course. Apart from him, what was there? You know. Oh, actually, um, C.S. Lewis had just started writing. My aunt gave me um, the silver, whatever it's called, the silver um, chair. Yeah. It was hot off the press. It was his first edition. I've still got it. And it was, um, I wasn't very well. And she kind of bought it in a shop and gave it to me. So I, I gobbled up those books, the Narnia books, when they first came out. But otherwise, what was it? Roger Kipling, you know, there was a jungle book. There was all sorts of dreadful Victorian novels, which I loved. And they used to make me cry, gave me sinusitis. You know, with, with starving children. And the children would be sort of in the snow with bare feet, and then they would hear singing coming from a building. And they'd go in, and there would be a church, and they'd be converted, and then and then and then they'd die, and they'd go to heaven. And I just love these novels. I read them all. They were completely morbid and dreadful. Don't try and read one now; you'll be shocked. But you can read Jeffrey Trees now, and it jumps off the page. Absolutely, it really does <laughs> jump off the page. Well, you've you've solidified my desire to to push that on. Elizabeth, I'm I'm aware of of your time as well, so I think I think we shall probably draw things to a close. Um, I think a lot of the people that that listen to this podcast probably like to write and like to read. Um, have you got any any closing tips for writers and readers? Oh yes, I have. I have. Okay, here's three things I would say. 
you know this, I'm sure you know this, Chris. Number one is read. You know, obviously, you've got to read everything and read out of your comfort zone if you can. So read science, read nonfiction, read fiction, read if you only like fantasy, read true life stories, if and vice versa. If you can't find anything to read, you read the back of the cornflakes packet, you know, read everything. I was on holiday once with my family. We ran out of books. So I started buying three newspapers a day and just reading them cover to cover. Exactly. And listen, listen, because you only learn to write dialogue by listening. I used to go on the, well, I still do this. I sometimes go on the top of a bus and there's somebody in the seat behind having a conversation. You hear the most incredibly funny things on buses and I write them down. I just got a pencil and paper and I write them down. And then I write them in my diary that night. And I, my diary is full of these hilarious overheard conversation that's re- read and listen first two things secondly just write you know um write a diary is the best thing write every day write your diary in which you record your feelings people you've met things that have struck you but i think the third one um and i say this to kids is um just get out there and live you know take risks actually can't say that to children, but you can say it to adults. Do you stuff. Can. No, 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 no. You can say it to children. So okay. the um, one of my favourite parenting tips is from, um, it's about boats. It's in the Lake District. Everyone's, Swallows and Amazons. Swallows and Amazons. And, and, they, uh, and, and they ask if they can go and stay overnight on an island for three days. And I think they are 12, 10, yeah, yeah. 8 and 6. And mum yeah, yeah. sends a telegram to dad. And dad sends a telegram back and says, um, if not duffers won't drown better drowned than duffers Um, exactly (laughs) so cool well i think you have to actually push yourself out there so that you learn to feel and that you learn to experience stuff and you know all fiction comes out of the author's life and if you if you put yourself in situations where you've tested yourself and you know yourself you understand your your own feelings, your own limits, you're going to be able to produce characters that can do the same. So I I just feel so my 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 tips are read, listen, write, and live. There you go. I mean that's a that's yeah, that's that's pretty solid. Um well thank you very much, Elizabeth. Um it's been honestly, it's it has this has been my Jeffrey Treese moment. Uh, of uh, well in more ways than one um but um yes i think uh i think yes (laughs) i'm a little bit overwhelmed um thank you very much for coming on the show um yeah and thank you for writing well not just crackers because although i've been very inspired by that i'm sure there have been thousands maybe even millions of people touched by your words over the years well, thank you. And I would just like to, can I just give a final shout out for my website, which is www.elizabethlaird.co.uk. And Laird is L-A-I-R-D. As in Scotland, yes, L-A-I-R-D. And I've just realised, I don't think I put crackers on it. Oh, lots of other books have dropped off, but let's have another look. Sorry. <laughs> so um, there you are. There we go. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Um, it's been a great pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much. And good luck with your novel. You've just listened to this book I read. Find out more about us, our podcasts, opportunities for submissions to our projects, and more at beyondcataclysm.co.uk. Thanks for listening.